Hi, I'm Chip with the Two Minute Time Lord podcast for January 9th, 2010. I'm sorry, 2010. This is a time dilation podcast. This means I'm throwing the two-minute format out the window so I can interview somebody who's got some interesting stuff to say. In this case, it's Dr. Matt Hills, who's written the book Triumph of a Time Lord from I.B. Taurus Publishers in the U.K. and Paul Grave Macmillan in the U.S. And stay through to the end because there's a little something special after the interview. Hi, I'm Chip with the Two Minute Time Lord podcast, and I am talking to Dr. Matt Hills, whose new book, Triumph of a Time Lord, is about to come out to take a deeper look at the phenomenon of the reimagined and resurrected Doctor Who TV series. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Matt. Uh, Matt, tell me a little bit about Triumph of a Time Lord. What kind of a book is it? Uh, well, it takes a sort of media studies approach uh, to BBC Wales Doctor Who. Um, so it's really, I conceptualised it as a sort of three-part look at the reinvented series. Um, I start off by looking at the sort of altered relationships between fans and producers. And the kind of obvious question, the big question to ask there is how is that relationship um completely transformed or you know, in certain ways changed by the fact that Russell T. Davis, the showrunner, uh, has himself been a kind of long-term fan of Doctor Who. So what does it mean for fans who are also media producers to take over uh, the running of the show? Uh, then I move on to think about questions of genre and format, exactly how uh, the new production team um, reinvented Doctor Who, what elements of classic Who have they played up, what have they downplayed, how has Doctor Who had to work differently uh, for the sort of TV industrial context in which it now uh, operates. Uh, And then finally, I kind of move on to think about the show as kind of mainstream TV. Uh, How have kind of categories of cult television been sort of almost warded off I think there's been almost an anxiety on the part of the production team that they didn't want the new show to be seen as cult for a niche audience. Um, So sort of thinking about how that process has worked as well. Um, And I use a particular kind of theoretical approach throughout, uh, which is tied back to a particular um, writer, Michel Foucault, which just means really thinking about kind of discourses which circulate around uh, Doctor Who, that is sort of patterns of meaning, practices, uh, ways of conceptualizing the program and its audience and so on. Um, so hopefully that gives you a flavor of the book. It's, it does indeed. Uh, let's take a look at these uh, three aspects real quick. Uh, first of all, the relationship between fans and producers. It's commonly regarded that uh, Russell T. Davies, Phil Collinson, Stephen Moffat, many of the people who uh, became involved in the new series were deep fans of the old series. And uh, just sort of in a nutshell, how has that informed how this series grew and how the series relates to current fans? Well, you get, obviously, the fan base being targeted and addressed in certain ways. So you get things like, you know, um, Russell T. Davis having done the production notes column in Doctor Who magazine. Uh, so you, and you also get, obviously, uh, Russell and a, a range of other uh, writers and the production team drawing um, in great detail on their fan knowledge. 
So whereas in the past you might have thought of fandom as a kind of powerless elite, in other words, they were an elite readership that had fan knowledge that the producers may not have had, uh, that relationship is, is altered um, precisely because you've got that kind of, in scare quotes, elite fan knowledge, which is being directly drawn on by the production team. So you've got a kind of closeness, a greater closeness between the producers and the fans in some sense, but also actually an antagonism between them. Uh, you know, the fact that, that Russell would talk about certain sections of fandom as being the Ming Mongs, uh, for example, or the fact that Phil Collinson in an interview was, was very irate about a particular fan getting access to behind-the-scenes production information to do with uh, the end of Series 3, I think it was, and a particular costume. Um, so there's a sort of antagonism at the same time as there's a kind of uh, greater proximity and closeness between fans and producers. But I think that the fact that the producers are fans has really led them to focus on the consistency of the new series that as fans they would be aware that classic who was often very uneven and you go from one brilliant story to one suddenly a clunker you know the next week and so actually it's not so much about kind of being obsessed with fan wank or continuity i think it's been much more about tone meetings and consistency mm-hmm. you mentioned antagonism and from my perspective as a fan i see antagonism frequently in the other direction as well when a fan of the classic series sees the new series going in a different direction where does that come from do uh, classic fans recognize the producers as fans or almost betrayers sometimes uh, well certainly i think for uh, what i would see as a sort of relative minority uh, of the kind of long-term fandom, the reinvented show uh, might not feel to them like Doctor Who. Um, but that's precisely part of um, one of the things I argue in the book is fans could learn from academia in the sense of not getting so hung up on what they feel is the essence of Doctor Who. Because if you're kind of theorizing it as a text, then you know the academic side of the argument says, well, Doctor Who is you know, is whatever it is um, institutionally kind of reinvented as, um, rather than saying, oh, it's got kind of soap drama elements or um, it's kind of more sentimental than the old series or it's more action-adventure and and less kind of science-fictional perhaps in certain ways. Um, You know, you can kind of respond to that, not in terms of, oh, it's, it's not being true to a particular kind of template, almost platonic essence of Doctor Who. But I do think that the response from you know that kind of minority of fans who kind of feel that that it, it isn't Doctor Who anymore that is perfectly understandable because you know that's what fandom will tend to do in particular ways is try to construct a vision or a view of of what the program is for them which tends to become prescriptive you know what the program should be and hence the idea of jumping the shark you know a program that somehow has moved away from. Uh, what prescriptively uh, it ought to be. So I do think that is understandable, um, but the production team have had to. They can't make the same programme that was made uh, in the 60s, 70s and 80s um, because that format simply, well, the format doesn't exist now, but it just wouldn't work in the same way. It couldn't work in the same way. Doctor Who had to be um, you know, reimagined and, and sort of brought up to date and made to work for... 21st century audience, which means changing pace, uh, pacing particularly, 
Uh, obviously, the much more reliance on kind of single episode stories and so on. And that really neatly uh, addresses the second part of your book, I believe, the way that Russell and Julie Gardner reformatted the show. Do you expect any changes in the format uh, with a new production team, or will it simply be the same format spoken with a different accent? Um, well, I suspect quite strongly uh, the latter. Uh, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see, but I think the way in which the show has been kind of reformatted, so uh, through perhaps a greater emphasis on time travel, uh, rather than the TARDIS sort of delivering the Doctor to different adventures, actually trying to use, tease out more uh, the paradoxes and the complications and the story possibilities of time travel, and also the emotional impacts, the kind of sort of affects of time travel, uh, where, you know, you can be separated from your loved ones and suddenly appear sort of, you know, in, in sort of non-linear uh, patterns of temporality. Though All those sorts of things, actually, Stephen Moffat has wanted to explore, um, particularly in his own stories already. So I think we'll see, you know, much more use of concentration on the time travel elements of Doctor Who and their possibilities both for provoking emotion, sentiment, and also comedy, kind of comedic possibilities of time travel. I think that'll be important. But the other thing that I think the formatting, the reformatting of New Who has done is put even greater emphasis on uh, the importance of monsters. Uh, the idea that you have a monster which can be double-coded, that is, can both scare the child audience within acceptable limits, but also can carry uh, meanings for the adult audience, so it can be sort of political or satirical, things like Cybermen standing in for kind of digital culture, uh, in particular ways, given a kind of layer of meaning that can work for uh, the older audience, if you like. And I think I would expect uh, the new production team to continue, really, a lot of those threads. I think it will be a case of much more similarity rather than difference. I'm sure there will be differences, but I think uh, the, the format as it's been reimagined so successfully, I think is likely to be significantly still present in Series 5. Is the format of the new series inherently deeper than the classic series? Is it something that can be studied more deeply, or is it simply just, uh, you know, the classic series had just as much substance to it, it's just a different sort? I think it's, it's really the sort of second. I don't think the new series lends itself to academic analysis any more or less uh, than the classic series did. I mean, the, when I was writing my book, um, you know, sort of classic kind of forerunner, uh, for me, and something that inspired me academically and as a fan, actually, was Tullock and Alvarado's book, Doctor Who, The Unfolding Text. Uh, and so I was very pleased that John Tullock, actually, the co-author of that book, actually wrote a, a short foreword uh, to Triumph of the Time Lord. But something like The Unfolding Text, uh, you know, very um, strongly demonstrated, you, you could do a very detailed, in-depth, kind of structuralist reading, really, of classic Who, and the new series would support um, you know, a range of equally kind of detailed uh, and in-depth kind of academic studies. It's just that the new series you know, works in slightly different ways. It's doing kind of different things. And maybe also academia kind of moves on and, you, and therefore you use kind of um, different theoretical tools to sort of unlock um, thinking about the series. Last point of your book uh, is uh, looking at whether the show is mainstream or cult, 
And it sounds to me like your answer is it's not a one or the other thing, it's both. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the final chapter is sort of Doctor Who as mainstream cult, uh, kind of question mark, because it sounds as though it should be uh, an oxymoron or something that you can't combine those categories. But I think Doctor Who can't stop being cult in the sense that it has the history that it does. It has the kind of established long-term fandom. Um, so even you know when it's brought back and it becomes a flagship drama, uh, and it's getting in, in the UK getting kind of huge audiences and is a you know a big kind of media event. It has that almost kind of saturation coverage, um, or has had that at certain points. It's absolutely mainstream, but within that you've still got the established, uh, if you like, cult uh, audience who are still pouring over it in particular ways, who are reading new episodes in relation to the series' entire history. Uh, debating that in all sorts of ways and so on, wanting to kind of get spoilers and get information uh, you know, long in advance of transmission equally. So it's both mainstream and cult. But what was interesting for me was you might think that there would be, again, sort of antagonisms between those two classifications, really, that they might sort of be in opposition. But the, the cult fandom has almost welcomed the mainstreaming of Doctor Who, because in a sense it's a kind of validation uh, of their long-running fandom. It's sort of everybody else catching up with fans' kind of love for Doctor Who, really. And actually the, the kind of antagonism between mainstream and cult has come more from producers who have needed to recontextualise the show as mainstream, not cult. So they've been opposed to sort of cult labels in publicity interviews and the like. Uh, you know, Russell T. Davis has been you know, very careful to position the program as, as mainstream, not cult, whereas the fan audience is happy to embrace it being both, really, or cult within uh, a wider mainstream success. So there's an interesting set of kind of relations that, that have been played out there around BBC Wales Doctor Who as well. I've never experienced a fandom, and that may just be my lack of experience, but I've never experienced one where um, if you go to the uh, major forums, just uh, absolute um, obsession in certain uh, threads over the ratings and the appreciation index and how the show's <laughs> yeah. doing with the, the not-wees, as they're called. Yeah. But I, I think that, that for me, is um, understandable in terms of uh, the history of Doctor Who. And, it's, and I would interpret that through, you know, through that lens, through the history of the fandom, uh, where you know, you've got, obviously, very precise, um, very particular events, uh, really, the sort of cancellation of Doctor Who and how that kind of played out in the 80s. Um, so you've got um, you know, a whole series of ways fans, perhaps, being anxious not to find themselves in a kind of, you know, repeat scenario, uh, you know, wanting to kind of um, feel that Doctor Who is retaining its newfound success, that it isn't somehow collapsing back into uh, this kind of feared position of, of becoming, you know, cult, not mainstream again. So I, I would kind of interpret it as being to do with the particular and specific uh, kind of cultural history of Doctor Who and, and its fandom, really. What is it like being an academic and a fan at the same time, uh, from looking at uh, information about you on the web and uh, flipping through uh, a couple of your articles? It certainly seems that you've got a 
deep and abiding love for the things that you study? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of very privileged in, in that sense, in that I get to do professional work, you know, paid work as an academic, which is about largely, not always, but largely about um, TV shows and films and you know, media texts that, that I have loved um, as a fan. So, for example, I, I have been a lifelong fan of Doctor Who. Uh, you know, my parents say that I was watching it when I was sort of two or three years old, although I don't remember that. Um, but, uh, you know, allegedly I've been a fan longer than I can actually recall, uh, whereas I've only only been a professional academic for really the sort of past decade or so. So for me, it's sort of bringing together kind of different uh, aspects of my own identity. But it's not just something that's kind of subjective or personal. It also means engaging with uh, a cultural debate, really, uh, about the um, values of two different communities about the identities and values of fandom versus academia. And in a lot of my work, I've tried to uh, bring fans and academics into greater dialogue, really. So in Triumph of the Time Lord, in the introduction, I argue that fandom can learn from academia, um, you know, shouldn't kind of perhaps view media theory as the enemy or as an alien force that's going to somehow kind of, you know, distort or do damage to Doctor Who. It could be a kind of productive just a different way of thinking about the show. But equally, that can't be a sort of one-way traffic. It isn't just old fans can learn from academics. You know, I also argue that academics really could do with learning from fandom. Uh, for example, fans um, don't just watch Doctor Who. You know, it's part of a sort of an ongoing kind of timeline for fans, really, where, you know, as soon as you get a sort of press release about uh, Doctor Who, you want to know more about, oh, what's the story title and who's going to be cast in it, and then you want to know about filming, and you build up the transmission, and then you debate it sometimes for years afterwards. So, you know, the fans' experience of a show uh, um, is, is something that's kind of never really fixed and finished, that you can never fully get a handle on. It just kind of kind of lives with you. Uh, is, I think, something that academics could learn from as well. So, yeah, fandom and academia sort of learning from each other is the kind of model for the book, really. And my last question to you is, uh, for a fan, what's the benefit of taking that extra leap, uh, learning a little bit more about media studies, uh, you know, uh, reading Triumph of the Time Lord, and just sort of Taking, looking at their the object of their fandom with uh, through a different lens. Uh, what, do, how do you benefit from looking at a show more deeply? Oh, I think, I mean, I would hope that fans would have an interest in. I mean, I, I certainly did when I was young. Would have an interest in all the different kind of ways of thinking about their fan object. So, I mean, I actually tried to read Doctor Who: The Unfolding Text when I was a teenager. And it is a very technical book. Uh, it's the first book-length academic study of Doctor Who. So I was probably too young for that then. I sort of bounced off it. But I was still, you know, just as I wanted to read all sorts of press coverage of Doctor Who, uh, wanted to kind of read around the show, um, I found that I wanted to engage with um, that sort of academic work. So I would hope that fans would really see the kind of in-depth, detailed analysis, academic analysis of Doctor Who as, as just another expression, really, or a kind of a particular and a different expression, but a, an articulation of, of passion for the show. 
Um, you know, I, I really hope the triumph of the Time Lord isn't kind of seen by people as a, a very kind of technical, um, scholastic kind of exercise. Hopefully my love for Doctor Who kind of come, you know, comes through in terms of the sort of detail of the engagements uh, and the kind of sort of fascination with trying to understand Doctor Who, because that's really what fans do themselves. We're all, you know, we feel such a kind of passionate engagement with the show that we're almost trying to sort of make sense of that and think, well, what is it in the show that holds me so intently and, and, and excites me as a viewer? And I think acad- academia can be another kind of route into working that through, really. Thanks so much to Dr. Matt Hills for being such a great interview guest. His publisher has a gift for one lucky listener of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast. If you would like a free copy of Triumph of a Time Lord, please throw your hat in the ring for your chance to win it by either joining the Two Minute Time Lord page on Facebook at facebook.com slash numeral two minute time lord or by sending me a message on Twitter with the hashtag I want the book. I'll pick one name at random and send you the book. It's just that easy. Thanks for listening and tune in in a few days for a genuine two minute, 120 second edition of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast. <laughs>